0: Hey friends, I'm here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all. Let's learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay friends, let's begin. Hey there, my OOB tears. I'm just going to start out our time together today by saying, how about that episode title? (laughs) Don't you just love it? God lays down law and order. Oh, that law and order reference. Anyone who knows me at all knows that the law and order shows are my absolute favorites to watch. Most specifically, Olivia Benson and law and order SVU. 25 seasons and still going strong. So yes, just in case you were wondering, the play on words in the title of this episode was 100% intentional. <laughs> Today we find ourselves coming off our last episode, studying chapters 19-21, through 21, in which we left off at the base of Mount Sinai with Moses and the Israelites, God's presence, and the 10 words. However, friends, please hear me in this. If you haven't already listened to the OOBT episodes covering the first section of the book of Exodus, chapters 1-18, through 18, I would encourage you to go back and do so. It really is important for us to build on these stories and our understanding of them from a chronological reading. It does matter. Even if you don't have time right away to listen to all those previous episodes of our studies, I would encourage you to press pause, open your Bibles, or open the YouVersion Bible app or even some other audio Bible, and read or listen to those first chapters of Exodus a couple times, or maybe even three times, before you jump into the second half of the book not only for a chronological understanding, but also because it is not meant to be read outside the context of the book of Exodus as a whole. Oh, be tears, we are standing at the foot of a mountain, but the way we got to the foot of this mountain matters. With that thought in mind, and to fully understand what God was saying to them in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, let's hear this from Jen Wilkins' 10 Words to Live By book to help refresh our memories from our previous studies in Exodus to date. She begins, the reality of a higher authority explains why the giving of the Ten Commandments doesn't actually begin with the utterance of the first commandment. Instead, it begins the brief history lesson recalling a costly liberation and establishing who is in charge. And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 20, 1 and 2. A mere fifty days earlier, Israel had departed Egypt in the wake of ten plagues sent to accomplish her release. Fresh in their minds would be the memory of those dark days, the Nile running thickly red, dead frogs heaped in stinking piles, swarms of blighting insects, hail, diseases, darkness, and death. Having gathered them at Mount Sinai, in thunder and smoke, God reminds His people that it was by His mighty hand alone that their liberation was accomplished. Israel's only contribution to her freedom was to arise in obedience as those walking from death to life. God introduces the Ten Commandments to his people by identifying himself as the Lord their God and prompting them to remember Egypt. Why? Because before Israel can pledge allegiance to God alone, they must recall her costly deliverance. That deliverance entailed not just leaving behind the land of Egypt, but leaving behind the ways of Egypt. Each of the Ten Plagues was more than just a dramatic sign to Pharaoh that he must release the Hebrews, each was a symbolic defeat of an Egyptian deity. Osiris, whose bloodstream was believed to be the Nile, bleeds out before his worshippers when Yahweh turns the Nile to blood. In reverence of Hekwet, the frog goddess of birth, Egyptians regarded frogs as sacred and not to be killed. Yahweh slays them by the thousands. Egyptian gods governing fertility, crops, livestock, and health are all shown to be impotent before the mighty outstretched arm of Israel's god. In the ninth plague of darkness, Yahweh demonstrates his rule over the sun god Ra, whom Pharaoh was believed to embody. And in the final plague, the death of the firstborn, God shows himself supreme over the entire Egyptian pantheon by demonstrating his power over life and death, one God toppling all rivals. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. The message to the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai is clear. Before you can obey me as the God of the ten words of life, you must revere me as the God of the ten plagues of death. The response required is obvious, too. If the God who toppled all rivals in Egypt has brought you out of Egypt by His mighty outstretched arm, the only logical response is to obey the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Remember your costly deliverance. Pledge allegiance to me alone. Remember Egypt. Remember your costly deliverance. Oh, what a rescue it was. And His toppling of all those Egyptian gods one by one, to once and for all prove He is God alone, is so crucial to understanding the Ten Words, or Ten Commandments, and the Book of Covenant even. In essence, the first half of Exodus was spent showing us how to get Israel out of Egypt, and we will soon see the second half of Exodus will be spent showing us how God intends to get Egypt out of Israel. Oh my, so beautiful. Before we go any further today, please recall that I mentioned in our last episode that I had another resource I wanted to study about the 10 words to then share with you before we moved on. Well, actually, I left you with a maybe about finding time to study that one, but I can assure you I am no quitter, and I did make time to spend in Jen Wilkins' God of Freedom study. Yay. (laughs) Honestly, I am so glad I did, and will do my best to highlight a few insights about the ten words God gave the Israelites as presented by Jen. Here goes. In Exodus chapter 18, with Jethro's visit to Moses, we saw that there was an establishment of the judges to judge the people at all times a justice system set up for the nation of Israel, and as we will see, it will be developed more and on display in the book of Judges. But now that we have these Judges, we need a law to operate from. We also see here that God institutes law and order. We will see if the law is implemented, then order will follow, order out of chaos. Does that remind you of creation? I sure hope so. And just as a refresher here, the timeline shows that the law given at Mount Sinai is 50 days after the Exodus. We may feel it's been a lot of time that has passed because we have been closely studying through so many chapters to this point, but in reality, it has not been that long. They're seven weeks out of slavery, and wondering, is the God who delivered us from slavery in Egypt able to sustain us in our freedom in the wilderness? Israel will remain at Mount Sinai for almost a year and for the next 59 chapters in the Bible. They will not depart from Mount Sinai until chapter 10 in the book of Numbers. And think about where we are in the history of the nation of Israel. They are recently freed slaves. God is graciously providing them with law to do with ownership of property and with responsibility at a point where they don't have any of these things. All they've got are the clothes on their backs and whatever they've carried out as they ran from Egypt. But God is graciously looking forward toward where they are headed. And not only that, He is giving them laws that will set them apart, that will make them distinct from the nations around them in some very significant ways. This idea of countercultural laws is an important one, my OOB dears. God wanted them to be visibly set apart from the Egyptian culture they left and the Canaanite culture they would reside in when they reached the Promised Land. He wants them to look different. First 5's How Do I Get Through This Exodus Study offers this perspective about what we see happening here. In her devotional titled Rules, 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 Kayla Ferris says, I like rules. In my opinion, rules create order and structure, which I also like. This makes me a natural-born rule follower. My husband, on the other hand, sees rules differently. Mostly, he has questions like, Why is this rule here? Is it ironclad or more of a suggestion? And what happens if I don't obey the rule? Our different approaches to rules have led to some, let's say, healthy discussions. But at the end of the day, we both want to do the right thing for the right reasons. This is the mindset I think we need to take as we walk into today's reading of Exodus. In chapters 20 through 23, we see many rules. There are extreme rules with extreme consequences— Many might seem antiquated. Unless you have an ox with a tendency toward goring, you might even wonder if these rules have anything to do with modern society. However, there are timeless truths that apply to the Christian walk today. A Higher Standard When we look at this section of Scripture, it is important to remember the historical context of the time. This is a time period when the enslaved were considered property. The surrounding nations even thought the same about wives and children. In a violent world riddled with dangers, The laws we see in Exodus were so very countercultural. To give slaves, women, and even unborn children rights by law was the force of society to see them as human beings. God's intentions were clear. His people were to live to a higher standard than the world, especially when it came to human dignity. While these laws seem strange to us, in many ways they were a protection to the most vulnerable in society. This same principle applies to the church today. Our faith is not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about living by a higher standard, and our standard is incredibly high. We treat everyone like we would treat Christ. Colossians 3.11 says, Here there is not Jew or Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Take responsibility. Many of the laws in today's reading deal with restitution or making things right when we have wronged another. God wanted to make it clear to His people that they were to take responsibility for their actions. It was a reminder that actions have consequences, and it placed the emphasis on reconciliation. I am reminded of this story in Luke chapter 19, verses 1-10, through 10, when Jesus met a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Tax collectors were notorious for cheating and stealing. After meeting Jesus and welcoming Him into His home, Zacchaeus said, If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, Luke chapter 19, verse 8. Notice that Zacchaeus didn't make restitution to earn Jesus' love. He already had the full love of Jesus. But because of Jesus' love and forgiveness toward him, Zacchaeus went on to take responsibility and do right by others. This is our blueprint as Christians today as well. In the end, it's not the specifics of a rule, but the heart behind it that truly matters. As Christ followers, may we treat people at a higher standard, as we would Christ. And may we take responsibility to do right by others because of the lavish grace and love Christ gives us however you feel about rules. We can all agree on that. Okay, with that idea in mind, let's return to that brief overview from God and Freedom Study about the 10 words. Jen begins, Before we start with these 10 words, we need to ask why these were significant to the Israelites and why they are significant to the children of God for all time. The first commandment, God is the one true God, I am. You will have no other gods before God because there are no other gods. Remember, the purpose of the plagues was to systematically topple Egyptian gods one after another until the last god standing, so to speak, is the one true God himself. Also remember, this is not ancient history for the children of Israel. They are recently delivered so the plagues were only a few weeks back. That's how recent this is in their understanding. And yet, already, they need to be reminded that he is the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, who provided for them in the wilderness. And we see they are already questioning whether he was who he said he would be. So here God affirms for them that He is the only God and they will have no other gods before Him. If you know anything about Israel's history, you already know that this will continue to be a problem. Commandment 2. Do not make any image that would represent the invisible God and then bow down to it. That you would worship something that is created as though it is the uncreated invisible God, as in the golden calf to come. Think about how that statue can't possibly do justice to who God is. All it can do is diminish our understanding of who God is, because God is limitless. He is infinite. The third commandment includes a command to not misrepresent God either. Let it be said of us, Blessed is she who comes in the name of the Lord who walks according to His character, whose words and deeds match, who does not seek to misrepresent God in the way that she lives her life, but instead seeks to bear His image in everything that she does. Moving ahead to commandment number four, about the Sabbath. We have already seen this in practice in Exodus chapter 16 with the manna and the quail, and it also points back to the creation account. We need to put ourselves into the skin of the Israelites to understand how miraculous this command is because they are fresh out of slavery. They have been under hard toil and labor under Pharaoh, and it was labor without rest. God makes rest a law. You must rest. Then we see commandment number five, which is a hinge command that's still talking about authority but begins to shift our focus to human authority over us. Honor your father and mother was not given to the children at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was given to the adults with adult parents. Honor your aging parents. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 and 22, Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount links the sin of murder to anger and contempt and believing the other person is worthless. Jesus is drawing us and calling us to an awareness of where the big sin starts. All agree that murder is not okay, but God includes this commandment because you would be taking a life of someone who was created in His image, a fellow image-bearer, and only God holds the keys to life and death, not you and me. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, Jesus links the sin of adultery to the sin of lust. Lust is also related to contempt. It is as if you are saying, I will consume that person for my gratification. So just as we saw with not murdering, we also see here that we should see others as God does, as image bearers. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Think of how the Israelites would have heard this. They're just out of slavery in Egypt, so owning personal property is a new thing. There aren't a lot of haves and have-nots at this point, but God knows eventually they will enter the promised land and have property, and how they respond in that moment is going to reveal who they worship. Hear God so graciously, before they even find themselves in that circumstance, makes provision for them to have a way to live at peace with each other. Number nine, you shall not lie or bear false witness. You must tell the truth about another person's character. Do not accuse your neighbor with false testimony. And this would have been very important to this early legal system that's being implemented in Israel. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Think of how the Israelites would have heard this. They're just out of slavery in Egypt, so owning personal property is a new thing. There aren't a lot of haves and have-nots at this point, but God knows eventually they will enter the promised land and have property, and how they respond in that moment is going to reveal who they worship. Here, God so graciously, before they even find themselves in that circumstance, makes provision for them to have a way to live at peace with each other. Commandment number nine, you shall not lie or bear false witness. Telling the truth about another person's character and not accusing your neighbor with false testimony would have been very important in this early legal system. True testimonies are necessary and a lot is at stake in this early legal system. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 18 says, False witness against a neighbor is like a war club, sword, or sharp arrow. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet, which basically is meaning, give me all your stuff. But we know that we should be content with what we have, as often it leads to comparison or discontentment when we are not, as if God's provision is not enough for us. Okay is a couple bookkeeping-type items I want to share before we move on to chapters 22 through 24. 1. The Ten Words or Ten Commandments are some of the most well-known instructions in the Bible. One reason for their familiarity is that they appear in multiple places throughout Scripture, including the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, we read that Jesus said, "...He did not come to abolish the law of God, but to fulfill it. And He is the only one who perfectly lived out these commandments." Be sure to head on over to the show notes for this episode as I included cross-references that I found in both my New Living Translation, Life Application Study Bible, and She Reads Truth Exodus Study Guide, which outline each of the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament alongside some of their references in Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. Don't miss this valuable opportunity to dig deeper here as we have previously discussed Jesus did what no human was ever able to do. His life and words were the perfect example of God's design for us. That is the point of the Ten Commandments and the whole of God's law, to point us toward God's good plan for us while revealing our inadequacy to accomplish it. The law points us to Jesus, so important and so good. 2. Another perspective I found in my research indicated that the ten words also give us a glimpse into God's character. Israel must keep the Sabbath because God desires rest and peace for His people. They must not murder because God saves the lives of His people. They must not commit adultery because God is faithful to His people. On and on we can see who God is by how He calls Israel to live. So beautiful. Seeing both the character of God and Jesus is found throughout it all in Scripture. More on that later, I promise. (laughs) Before we move on to begin reading from our chapters for today, listen to this introduction to the Book of the Covenant Jen Wilkin provides as part of her God of Freedom study. We just concluded a look at the ten words that make up the general requirements of the Mosaic covenant. Now we will examine the Book of the Covenant and the ceremony in which Jesus and the people confirm the covenant as a whole. This book contains the specific requirements of the covenant for the people of Israel in Moses' day. Not surprisingly, these specific requirements are the extended version of the ten words, the interpretation of the principles in the Ten Commandments into the specific context of that original audience. The Israelites who were newly freed from slavery, who were learning how to live at peace with God, at peace with one another, learning how to deal with issues of property rights, learning how to deal with personal injury, with issues of justice within the community. And so God graciously gives them these detailed instructions and this extended look of what the ten words mean in everyday life for them at that time. So as you read, you may find that some of the commands are very confusing, alarming, or just plain weird. Take a deep breath. As a person living in a very different time and culture, you will need to go slowly and allow what you know about the character of God to guide your interpretation. He is just, wise, loving, gracious, merciful, and good. We will work together to place these commands in their cultural context and to examine why God put them in place. Understand that the commands of this book of the covenant were intended to be used by Israel's judges as they handled legal disputes between the people. Thus, mercy and grace are largely absent from their language, just as they are largely absent from our law books today. And these laws were intended for use by Israel's judges in a trial setting, in a court. And so we would assume the judge would apply wisdom in the way that he is executing his judgments, that he would take into account other factors that these laws on the surface value might not communicate. These laws were also intended to give the Israelites wisdom and guidance about living faithfully before the Lord in every area of life. In this way, they are somewhat similar to the wisdom sayings in Proverbs, and when understood rightly, they can be applied to our lives today. Okay, my oob tears, I'm just going to go ahead and read straight on through both chapters 22 and 23 to give us the scope of what is referred to as the Book of Covenant. Exodus chapter 22 in the New Living Translation begins, Protection of Property. If someone steals an ox or sheep and then kills it or sells it, The thief must pay back five oxen for each ox stolen and four sheep for each sheep stolen. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. But if it happens in daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. A thief who is caught must pay for everything he stole. If he cannot pay, then he must be sold as a slave to pay for his theft. If someone steals an ox or a donkey or a sheep and it is found in the thief's possession, then the thief must pay double the value of the stolen animal. If an animal is grazing in a field or vineyard and the owner lets it stray into someone else's field to graze, then the animal's owner must pay compensation from the best of his own grain or grapes. If you are burning thorn bushes and the fire gets out of control and spreads into another person's field, destroying the sheaves or the uncut grain or the whole crop, the one who started the fire must pay for the lost crop. Suppose someone leaves money or goods with a neighbor for safekeeping, and they are stolen from the neighbor's house. If the thief is caught, the compensation is double the value of what was stolen. But if the thief is not caught, the neighbor must appear before God, who will determine if he stole the property. Suppose there is a dispute between two people who both claim to own a particular ox, donkey, sheep, article of clothing, or any lost property. Both parties must come before God, and the person whom God declares guilty must pay double compensation to the other. Now, suppose someone leaves a donkey, ox, sheep, or any other animal with a neighbor for safekeeping, but it dies, or is injured, or is taken away, and no one sees what happened. The neighbor must then take an oath in the presence of the Lord. If the Lord confirms that the neighbor did not steal the property, the owner must accept the verdict, and no payment will be required. But if the animal was indeed stolen, the guilty person must pay compensation to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the remains of the carcass must be shown as evidence and no compensation will be required. If someone borrows an animal from a neighbor and is injured or died when the owner is absent, the person who borrowed it must pay full compensation. But if the owner was present, no compensation is required. And no compensation is required if the animal was rented, for this loss is covered by the rental fee. Social Responsibility If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to anyone and has sex with her, he must pay the customary bride price and marry her. But if her father refuses to let him marry her, the man must still pay him an amount equal to the bride price of a virgin. You must not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal must certainly be put to death. Anyone who sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, and I will certainly hear their cry, my anger will blaze against you and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a moneylender would. If you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, then I will hear, for I am merciful. You must not dishonor God or curse any of your rulers. You must not hold anything back when you give me offerings from your crops and your wine. You must give me your firstborn sons. You must also give me the firstborn of your cattle, sheep, and goats. But leave the newborn animal with its mother for seven days, then give it to me on the eighth day. You must be my holy people. Therefore, do not eat any animal that has been torn up and killed by wild animals. Throw it to the dogs. Exodus chapter 23. A Call for Justice. You must not pass along false rumors. You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand. You must not follow the crowd in doing wrong, When you are called to testify in a dispute, do not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice, and do not slant your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that has strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. In a lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. Be sure never to charge anyone falsely with evil, Never sentence an innocent or blameless person to death, for I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. Take no bribes, for a bribe makes you ignore something that you clearly see. A bribe makes even a righteous person twist the truth. You must not oppress foreigners. You know that what it's like to be a foreigner, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day you must stop working. This gives your ox and your donkey a chance to rest. It also allows your slaves and the foreigners living among you to be refreshed. Pay close attention to all my instructions. You must not call in the name of any other gods, do not even speak their names. Three annual festivals. Each year you must celebrate three festivals in my honor. First, Celebrate the festival of unlimited bread. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast, just as I commanded you. Celebrate this festival annually at the appointed time in the early spring, for that is the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. No one may appear before me without an offering. Second, celebrate the festival of harvest, when you bring me the first crops of your harvest. Finally, celebrate the festival of the final harvest at the end of the harvest season, when you have harvested all the crops from your fields. At these three times each year, every man in Israel must appear before the Sovereign, the Lord. You must not offer the blood of my sacrificial offerings together with any baked goods containing yeast, and do not leave the fat from the festival offerings until the next morning. As you harvest your crops, bring only the very best of the first harvest of the house of the Lord your God. You must not cook a young goat in his mother's milk. So before we begin, and as I've mentioned before— Please know that while many of these laws we read don't sit well or don't make any sense at all to us, we must remember that they are not written for us today. They are written for the Israelite culture as they were leaving slavery and the oppression of the Egyptians, as they were trying to learn how to live not as slaves any longer, but as a new nation. Let's just put our boots on the ground, so to speak, and peer into the culture they were in at the moment these laws were being given by God. The people of Israel are now a camp of two million freed slaves from the very harsh and corrupt culture of Egypt and they were not in that culture living under its laws for only a year or a decade even. The laws and practices they knew from hundreds of years in slavery were not the laws and practices God wanted for His holy nation. The Egyptian practices have infiltrated generation after generation to the point that those generations can't remember what it would have been like to live in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family line. Basically, we are seeing in these verses, in these laws, that God is trying to systematically undo everything they have inherently learned by watching and living in Egypt for generations. Phew! Can you even imagine how foreign these commandments and laws must have seemed to them, even, given what they were just freed from mere weeks before? Gosh, that is actually a lot to process for them, too, isn't it? Very different from the life they recently left as slaves in Egypt. With the idea of slavery here in our minds right now, how about we take a closer look at God's laws regarding the fair treatment of slaves as we read in chapter 21 in our last episode. In the God of Freedom study, Jen Wilkin provided some interesting clarification of just what type of slavery this was, and I want to jump right in here to share. It certainly helped me put my mind at ease a bit about what God is doing in allowing slavery amongst the people He had just freed from slavery. Maybe that bothered you a bit too, so let's listen into what Jen Wilkin shared. When we read the word slave here, it is not referring to what most of us think of when we think about slavery. We think about the transatlantic slave trade. We think about chattel slavery. We think about someone being stolen from the place where they live, carried to a foreign land, bought, and sold, right? If you look down in the text of the book of the Covenant just a little ways in Exodus 21, verse 16, and then also again reiterated later in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that our understanding of slavery that we typically have in the U.S. is not okay that it is actually punishable by the penalty of death at this time. The slavery discussed here is a form of servitude, in which someone willingly enters into debt servitude because they are facing starvation, because they cannot pay their debts. In this system, in their agricultural society, a year without a crop or two could lead to starvation and death, so these laws make it a concern not of the individual to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but of the community as a whole to look for ways to rally around and support the person who is facing financial ruin that could potentially lead to starvation and death. It's a sharing of burden in looking to the last and the least. It's the shouldering of the problem of poverty within the community. And we must remember that the law codes began with how to treat slaves because they were just slaves. They had lived life as Egyptian slaves, and God was trying to get Egypt out of them. Then in chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. First of all, we just want to make a note of the fact here that we are hearing talk about women at all. These are laws that are designed to actually protect women, whereas in another culture you would not hear of these kinds of things. Women did not have agency or status, but we're going to see them treated as equals in these laws. There would have been similar laws for sons too, but these are laws given to give extra protection for women for safety. These are pointed out here to remind them that they are not like where they came from. Women count in this nation. Is this ideal? No. But God is managing within the existing system, and many of these laws are dealing with less than ideal arrangements in the most humane ways possible. So as mentioned before, we need to recognize as we read these laws to not think that God is endorsing every practice. Israel is very much like the neighboring cultures, and there were developmental and economic reasons for some of those practices. Societies developed more humanitarian solutions as they advanced, settled down, and could, for example, build prisons, hospitals, and a welfare system. They are only now starting a judicial system by God giving the judges these laws to use as a framework for hearing and judging cases, and they are living a transient life in a camp in the wilderness. What we should focus on when reading these laws is how God is teaching the Israelites how to start creating a culture of their own now that they will then take with them into the promised land. And He is also providing them with specific ways to further protect the rights and dignity of those who might be vulnerable, such as the poor, women, Orphans, widows, foreigners, and so on, God was calling his people to a higher standard of love and obedience than the other cultures. And it was a higher standard than they themselves had ever experienced before in their own lives as well. While we will get back to many of these laws more in depth as we continue our studies in the book of Leviticus, for now I will highlight some commentary from a few of them just to give us some framework and insight into their culture and what God was up against, so to speak, and how they had been taught to live and think while in slavery in Egypt. However, since we are roughly six or seven episodes out from finishing Exodus to begin our studies in Leviticus, I would encourage each one of you to take advantage of those cross-references found in your study Bibles to learn more about some of these often bizarre do-us laws as found here in the Book of the Covenant. Okay, let's keep moving forward in our studies with this perspective found in the God of Freedom study. Jen begins, When it comes to property laws, the common property of this time was animals, so we read a lot of animal talk. A lot of the scenarios are taken into account with regard to property, which when you're a people who have owned little to no property previously, you're going to need this. You need to know what the law is. The judges need to know what the law is. There needs to be right expectations on both sides of how justice will be administered. Why? Because we've said that we don't just say the law's a good thing. We say that law results in order. Law and order. This is how you bring order out of chaos. This is how a good creator God orders his people. Then in chapter 23, we read about the laws of justice and mercy, and in verse 9, God refers to them as sojourners in Egypt. He says to them, You know what it is like to be the outsider. Do not treat others the way you were treated. Treat them the way you wish you had been treated. Don't live out what you left. Now, we also read more discussion about Sabbath rest and then those three festivals that I hope sounded familiar to you from our previous studies in Exodus. Please know that both of these topics will continue to be developed as we move forward in the book of Leviticus and on. Just to clarify what we're reading here, though, verse 5's How Do I Get Through This Exodus Study had this to say about each of those festivals. In Exodus 23 verses 14 through 19, God gave specific instructions on three feasts to be celebrated by the people. The feasts were to be times of celebration, but also times of remembrance and worship, so that Israel would continually trust in God's faithfulness through all their generations. The three feasts set aside for the Lord were as follows. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread was to be celebrated immediately following the Passover. They were to eat unleavened bread for seven days in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. Feast of the Harvest was to be celebrated seven weeks after the Passover. This feast would mark the giving of the covenant in the wilderness. It would eventually be called the Feast of Weeks and also Pentecost because it was 50 days after the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Feast of Final Harvest or in Gathering was to be celebrated in the fall after they gathered in the harvest. It would later be called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. These feasts were also a foreshadowing of another great feast that God's people will celebrate one day. This feast, prepared by God Himself, will be called the Marriage Supper Feast of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 At this eternal feast the faithful of God will gather and remember His faithfulness, mercy, and love, and we will worship and celebrate the Lamb of God around the table of the King forever. Goodness, my friends, don't you just love the tenderness of God to command feasts to this ragtag baby nation camped in the wilderness, who are only now dreaming of this promised land and crops to harvest, feasts that they are to celebrate to remember His faithfulness, His provision, and His continued dwelling with them along the way, now and forevermore. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Okay, while I know we are quickly running out of time, I just couldn't pass over the last part of chapter 23, verse 19, which read, You must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. What in the world is that about? Are you wondering too, my be Tears? <laughs> Gosh, here's what I found about the reasoning behind that bizarre command. Apparently, the Egyptians had a superstitious rite at the end of their harvest of cooking a goat in its mother's milk and sprinkling the broth as a magical charm on their gardens. They thought that this made their fields more productive in the next season. It was a practice that God did not want the Israelites to repeat. So much of what God dictates to the Israelites in the law is the undoing of bad habits from surrounding cultures. Phew! Now that we have that confusing sentence cleared up, maybe, let's move on to verse 20 of chapter 23, which reads, A Promise of the Lord's Presence See, I am sending an angel before you to protect you on your journey and lead you safely to the place I have prepared for you. Pay close attention to him and obey his instructions. Do not rebel against him, for he is my representative, and he will not forgive your rebellion. But if you are careful to obey him following all my instructions, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, and I will oppose those who oppose you. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, so that you may live there, and I will destroy them completely. You must not worship the gods of these nations or serve them in any way or imitate their evil practices. Instead, you must utterly destroy them and smash their sacred pillars. You must serve only the Lord your God, If you do, I will bless you with food and water, and I will protect you from illness. There will be no miscarriages or infertility in your land, and I will give you long, full lives. I will send my terror ahead of you and create panic among all the people whose land you invade. I will make all your enemies turn and run. I will send terror ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites. But I will not drive them out in a single year, because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. I will drive them out a little at a time until your population is increased enough to take possession of the land. And I will fix your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, and from the eastern wilderness to the Euphrates River. I will hand it over to you, the people now living in the land, and you will drive them out ahead of you. Make no treaties with them or their gods. They must not live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me. If you serve their gods, you will be caught in the trap of idolatry. Exodus chapter 24 Israel accepts the Lord's covenant. Then the Lord instructed Moses, Come up here to me, and bring along Aaron, Nedab, Abihu, and seventy of Israel's elders. All of you must worship from a distance. Only Moses is allowed to come up near to the Lord. The others must not come near, and none of the other people are allowed to climb the mountain with him. Then Moses went down to the people and repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him. All the people answered with one voice, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. Then Moses carefully wrote down all the Lord's instructions, Early the next morning Moses got up and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He also set up twelve pillars, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent some of the young Israelite men to present burnt offerings and to sacrifice bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses drained half the blood from these animals into the basins. Then the other half he splattered against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again they all responded, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it over the people, declaring, Look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis as lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. Moses told the elders, Stay here and wait for us until we come back. Aaron and Hur are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I am gone, consult with them. Then Moses climbed up the mountain, and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Okay, friends, a couple things here. In Jen Wilkins' God of Freedom study, she spoke of the reference to the angel of the Lord as most likely a manifest presence or manifestation of God, just as a pillar of cloud and fire were. Actually, it seems to be implied here that the angel of the Lord will be in the pillar of cloud and fire to go before them as they make their way to the promised land. Then in verse 27, which read, I will send my terror ahead of you and create panic among all the people whose lands you invade. It is my hope that this reminded you of Rahab's testimony as we discussed in the first episode of this new year, God's cross-references plus I Am's plans. While I don't have time to go into specifics of that today, I will link the episode in the show notes if you would like to take a closer look at one example of how God did just this, sent terror and panic in front of them, in Rahab's instance, as they were actually preparing to enter Jericho, as found in the book of Joshua. I so hope you take a moment, if you haven't already, to listen into that one, as I believe it is important for us to once again be reminded that our God is a promise keeper, and what He says, all that He says, will be true. Gosh, friends, there's so much more we could cover in these verses alone, but we really are running out of time. So let's take a couple minutes to look closely at the cross-references found in our study Bibles that correlate the blood of the covenant ceremony with Jesus' Last Supper before we go any further. Most especially those words we hear often that are found in both Matthew and Luke and as we take communion in the church to this very day. In Matthew 26, verse 27 and 28, Jesus took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. The Christian Standard Bible translation for verse 28 reads, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Please note for yourself that one of the cross references found in the margins of our study Bibles for this verse in Matthew leads us back to Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, which in the CSB reads, Moses took the blood splattered it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Now that's some solid back-and-forth perspective as we're in the book of covenant and just read the covenant ceremony. So good. Before we move on, let's jump right into the part that I absolutely cannot get out of my mind, nor even wrap my mind around. And maybe you, like me, notice this for the first time in this reading in chapter 24. Verse 9 of the book of Exodus begins, Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. What? They not only saw God, but they feasted with him too? I can't even right now. God spread a banquet for them in the wilderness. They beheld. They saw God. I don't know what that even means, really, and commentaries had all kinds of varied thoughts here, ranging from them merely seeing his feet to actually seeing a representation of part of God in human form. But does it really matter? Can you imagine it? Gracious. How about I just leave us with this thought? Talk about experiencing God with us in a tangible way, am I right? Honestly, this thought sets us up quite nicely for what is to come in Exodus because of all those upcoming 59 chapters across books. All the upcoming tabernacle talk is 100% about God making a way to dwell with his people, to be with them. I so love that. And since this idea of covenant with God is so important to our understanding, I'm going to pull in one more resource I found Right Now Media's Exodus study featuring Philip Poynter. In session four, he says Exodus chapter 20 and 24 verses 1 through 11 demonstrate a covenant keeping God. Having revealed His covenant name of Yahweh to Moses and having communicated that identity to Israel, now God sets up terms of a binding relationship with His people. We know this primarily as the Ten Commandments. It sets conditions because Israel had obligations to fulfill for their part of the covenant, just as God did. God would protect them and provide for them and bring them into a promised land, and Israel was to behave in a manner that honored the greatness of the God that delivered them. With these Ten Commandments, God is binding a relationship with Israel that will be unbreakable. If they would keep the commands of God, then they would for sure receive God's blessing. Covenant is important to God. We see God make covenant in several places in Scripture. We see it in Genesis 9 with Noah after the ark, that God would never again destroy the world with water. In Genesis chapters 12, 17, and 22, we see the covenant to Abraham. That's what allows Israel to be God's chosen people here in Exodus, and God's delivered people. The covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that God would bless all families of the earth through His seed. Here in Exodus, this is what we know of as the Mosaic Covenant, a covenant of law for those who have been liberated. It's really to govern Israel in the Promised Land so that the land God graces them with, that they don't squander it. The blessing of God was supposed to be permanent in their lives, and these behaviors that God commands are to set them apart from the other nations around them, to make them distinct so that they would be holy, set aside for God's purposes. We see social laws in chapter 21 governing how they were to deal with those who were in debt to them, how they were to set up and serve at altars, how they were to treat one another, because honoring God also includes honoring the image of God in others. Well, Israel agrees to the covenant in Exodus chapter 24, and Israel claims they will follow God wholly and completely, but we know historically they don't do it. They fall short over and over and over again. And even though God could have rightly chosen to choose someone else, some other nation instead, God doesn't break covenant, but He redeems Israel and all of us through the Lord Jesus Christ, who tells us in Matthew 5.17 that's what He's come to do. He's come to fulfill the law that they and we could not. Chapter 24, verses 6-8 through of Exodus. We see this covenant ceremony where the altar is set up and where the blood is splattered to represent both God's part and the people's part. This is just a picture of the ultimate sacrifice on the ultimate altar, not the death of a bull, but the death of the Son of God and His blood that is sprinkled on that cross. His blood that's sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven is also filling a fountain where those of us who fail to do God's will rightly can find grace and forgiveness. Thanks be to God that we have this opportunity to see what God's mind and heart are toward us, that God chooses us, makes covenant with us, but when we cannot keep covenant, God keeps it on our behalf so that the new covenant that we have now is not a covenant that is based on our behavior, but based on the fact that Christ has kept for us the law we could not keep. Friends, before God gives the first commandment, He reminds the nation, in Exodus 20, verse 2, who He is. I am the Lord. That's the refrain of Exodus. Everything promised and done is based on the character of the self-existent God, who is that He is. Exodus 20, verse 3, I am the one who brought you out of slavery so you don't need any other gods beside me or before me. And I am the one who even now can deliver you in life's most challenging situations, so that we have no other need to seek any other source of help and hope but our covenant-keeping God. In fact, God's not really keeping covenant with us. God is keeping covenant with Himself, and we are included, benefited, rescued, and eternally secure because God has chosen us and has not changed His mind. Truthfully, between this covenant talk tracing all the way back to Abraham and Noah, even, along with coming across a couple starry night sky view photos taken in Mount Sinai when doing a recent Google image search. Side note here, if you are at all curious, I featured these breathtaking photos in my social media posts for this episode, and also linked the source in the show notes if you'd like to take a look for yourself, and I highly recommend you do. Anyway, I am struck by several thoughts when I consider covenant and these photos. I don't know about all of you, but I am a visual learner, and seeing this mountain in all of its glory is helpful in trying to imagine what the experience at the base of Mount Sinai was like for the Israelites, for Moses. And this image also reminds me of our time in Genesis, when God made His promises to Abraham as found in chapter 12, verses 1-3. through After asking him to look up at the night sky, God promised Abraham that he would multiply his descendants as those numerous stars he saw in the sky. He would be their God and give them a specific piece of land forever. Yet even before that, God said He would bless Abraham and his descendants so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. I don't know about you, but following our movement through the storylines of descendants of Abraham, as found in Genesis, including such names as Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, to name a few, and given the massive number of roughly two million people who recently were brought out of slavery in Egypt, the ones who are now camped at the base of Mount Sinai, this people who just completed yet another covenant ceremony initiated by God, and now had the promise of Canaan, their promised land on their minds. The people of Israel who will now begin to live in obedience of all the words and laws God has given them to truly begin developing as a nation. Oh gosh, I don't think I'll ever get over just how many promise upon promise we are seeing God make and fulfill, in His timing, our promise keeper. That's so good. Amazing, really. God has redeemed this group of people out of slavery in Egypt for a reason. From this nation, God will save all nations. And this was God's unfolding plan. From Abraham's family would come one nation, Israel, that will produce one son, God's son, who would save the world. This was Israel's role. From the nation of Israel, Jesus would come. Thank you, Jesus. So, if you are new around here, or even if you are not, How about if I take a few moments to share my heart as not only the the behind-the-scenes, but also the why of our every-other-week Bible study sessions together? Whether you may be new to the Open Our Bibles Together with M-Frame podcast, or maybe you've been around a while, I just want to remind us, yes, myself included, of the mission of this Bible study podcast, to get us all on the same page, so to speak. Yep, pun intended there. (laughs) In my mind, OOBT is similar to the weekly Wednesday night Bible studies I led at H2O Church Attica. Until a pandemic, that is. And if you're at all curious exactly how that transition from Bible study leader to podcast host happened, be sure to go to the About M page on my website for all the details. However, one thing I see as a plus of this podcast format, as opposed to the weekly Wednesday night Bible study times, is that you can listen all at once, pause me at any time to dig deeper for yourself, or even break up listening to an episode over the course of the tasks of your day, or throughout your week, or longer even. Sounds like a win-win to me whether it's in your car, on your lunch break, while folding laundry, on a walk, or in a million other ways, it is my prayer that you will be blessed by your time spent digging deeper into God's Word with me. Honestly, it is also my ongoing prayer that each one of us listening, yes, myself included again, will be captivated and excited by the aha moments of things we are finding in our studies and research as we open our Bibles together. I find so many every time I open my Bible to study for an episode and always seem to feel like I just have to share. It's so hard to leave out any of the new information I find, which I'm guessing if you've listened for any amount of time, you are picking up on that truth for yourself already. (laughs) I actually started this Bible study podcasting journey with this on my heart and mind. I truly am on an all-out mission to help others fall in love with the Bible too, to help take the plain old intimidation out of the Bible study process, to encourage us to keep coming back to our Bibles on the hard days and the good days, the confusing days, and the aha days, because I am 100% positive we will discover God, Jesus, and even ourselves as we work our way through the books of the Bible, one chapter at a time. And my OOB tears, that is absolutely still my intention and heart's desire to this very day, 56 episodes later. And just so you know, many of these thoughts came straight off the pages of my mfaring.com website. Yet one more example of God using my own words on a page, whether spoken out loud or not, to speak to me too. And, shameless plug here, my friends, if you haven't already, I would so hope you would take some time to head on over to the mfaring.com website to look around. Lots more than just show notes found there for sure, you know, like some much-needed reminders from my heart and mind as to exactly why I do what I do in studying the pages of God's Word, to then speak into the mic about what I've learned of those studies at the m M&M and Swick Shed. And don't forget to take a look at the photos of my F7 family, lists of my favorite things, and even the many study resources I love including the ones I feature in that PDF guide you can sign up to receive on the website as well. You know, all the things. Really. (laughs) Well, all of that is actually a lot more than it probably sounds like to accomplish to release a podcast episode to all of you every other week. I want you to also hear this truth as well, my sweet friends. It is my sincere hope and prayer that you all see this as a valuable Bible study session in which we all, fingers crossed if all goes according to plan, Come away from the study times together knowing more about the big-picture story of the Bible, God's love, His redemption, His promises, Jesus is seen throughout, God's character is revealed on those thin, crinkly pages, and even some application to our lives today. So, if you are new here, welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you've been around studying for any amount of time alongside me, thank you, and let's keep digging deep, shall we? I would also like to ask a favor of all of you, my friends, and it is this. In today's prayer time, would you take a moment and pray for this podcast and for me, M, your podcast host, Bible study partner and friend, that God would give me wisdom and insight as we dig into the pages of His Word, that all the words I speak into the mic are for the good of others, myself included, and for His glory, that we would all be excited and faithful to listen through these episodes as they release every other week, that God would give each of us aha moments and a deeper love of His words on these pages, and more importantly, the God who wrote them. Oh gosh, I do thank you in advance for taking time today and in the days to come to be praying for the Open Our Bibles Together with M Faring podcast. It means the world to me to be studying alongside each one of you. Truly, it does, my OOB tears. And since we took a bit of a tangent here today at the end of the episode, how about we just wrap it up with a teaser to our next episode from chapter 24, verse 18, which reads Moses remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Join me as we take a closer look at just what God, Moses, Aaron, and those Israelites camped at the base of Mount Sinai or up to on those 40 days and 40 nights. This is M. Faring and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.